I wanted to kind of start about how I came to this church. Now, I know a lot of you know the story that I followed a girl. I met a girl. She was in the youth group. I kept coming because of her. Eventually, we got married, and it all worked out. But it's still my transition into the church wasn't easy. So I I came from a very, uh, from a Catholic background. And again, it was the girl that kind of brought me in the church. And and youth group, I started out in youth group. That's kind of a different, different thing. But when you join college group and you're forced to be part of the bigger church, then things get real, right? And I can remember my first Sunday. Now, look, for everyone who loves to sit in the front, God bless you. God bless you. But I'm definitely a let's sit in the back type of guy, but not my girlfriend. I can remember the, when I first came to church, our stage was like long ways like this. And the college group section was right here. And I remember walking through the doors thinking, okay, we're going to sit back here. We just kept walking and walking. We were late. We were late. So worship was going on. So every eye was on us. And we sit right in front. And everything in me was like, this is, this is horrible. Also because I'm like 18 and I'm still staying up really late and then forcing myself to come here. So as Pastor Larry's giving a, a, a great message, I'm like <laughs> fighting everything. So I fell asleep through a lot of those messages in my early days. So... In all fairness, if everyone falls asleep during mine, I don't hold it against you because I did the same thing. It is what it is. So, so I would do that, and every Sunday, just in the front row, just everything in me was rough. I felt like everyone's eyes was judging me. And then I would go into the college group, and I can remember my first, I, I decided to go to the college group without my girlfriend, without Jenny. She had to work, but I'm like, you know what? I'm still going to go. I'm still going to put that, that foot forward, you know, and show her that, you know, I'm, I'm in this for the long haul. Like, this isn't just about you. I take my friend who was starting to get involved in the church as well, and we walk in, and I kid you not, I, I, you think I'm making this up, but I'm not. It felt like everyone, like the music and the air just like went out of the room, and all eyes were on us, and they were like, oh, why are you here? Not the college pastor at the time. He was a great guy. But the other people were like, oh, hello. This is where we sit. And then we were like untouchable, right? We, they, they, were like, they, they, they didn't connect with us. They didn't sit with us. We had one guy that was somewhat friendly, but he was kind of a weirdo and didn't last very long. So we attracted that. And there were some leaders that just like, kind of like looked at us funny, didn't really accept us, or so we thought. But as relationships happen, and the more you commit to something, the more you get to know somebody, and you get to know these certain leaders, and, and one leader in particular started just saying, hey, you know, do you want to get, go get lunch sometime? Sure. And we start building a relationship. And he starts kind of teaching me about things, discipling me. And he became a guy that discipled me and walked through life for me for 15 plus years. And one of my greatest friends. And it wasn't until we had this really good friendship that he told me 
his perspective of the first time he walked in. And he says, yeah, we didn't really like you. Here's the deal. You came in all like, I used to like dress like everything. I mean, I still match, but I really cared. Like I had a baseball hat in every color that had to match my outfit. Backwards hat, nice shoes, baggy pants, because that's how it was back then. And a pager, of course. Um, I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, well, I'm sure you do, because my parents would not let me get one, because why? Drug dealers have them. Um, so when I turned 18, what did I do? Got a pager. So anyways, have my pager. My friend, he had a different look to him. Scraggly, unkept hair, weird shirts, baggy pants. And he just kind of walked in and, you know, he had his, like, all nonchalantly and we'd walk in. And so he said, look, this is what we thought of you. We looked at your friend, we thought he was a druggie, and we thought you were his drug dealer. And we thought that for a good while until they got to know us. I'm like, why? So, well, you had the pager. I'm like, oh, really? I'm like, oh, my parents were right. But again, after some time, that guy got to know me. And again, he discipled me. He got to know who, who I truly was. And, and, and he discipled me in such a way. And again, I, I came from a Catholic background. And the, the concept of a relationship with God was different. And he showed me that not only is it possible, but it was attainable. Like it was, it's... I guess those are the same things. But it was attainable now. It wasn't something I had to wait for. It wasn't something that I had to work for. It was I could have it now, a relationship with God. And so later on, you know, as my life pr progressed, decided to go in the ministry, went to school, and one of the classes we learned about Augustine. And so today I want to talk about him, and I found out that a lot of what Augustine did, the guy, my friend John, I don't know if I said his name, John, did the same things for me. I'm like, huh, interesting. So I'm going to talk about Augustine of Hippo. He, that's just the town he was from. I don't think there were actually hippos there, but who knows. So he, this is, okay, so let me set the stage. So right now, when, he, when he's born, Constantine has just converted to Christianity. He's the emperor of Rome, and he's converted to Christianity. He finally uh, makes it a law or an edict to accept Christianity as a religion, right? So that's the start. Ten years after that, Christianity becomes Rome's national religion. It's number one religion, right? So this is about 300, 300 or 310 A.D., so everything that the disciples wanted out of Rome to, to, to be, you know, to be free finally happened about 300 years later, and it happened. And so Augustine was born in 354 A.D., so he's kind of being born in this world of really never knowing Rome any other way, and so Christianity is pretty popular. Like I said, it's the number one religion in, all, in the Roman Empire, 
He's born to a farmer and a mother, a father who was a pagan, a mother who was a Christian, and they were farmers and they were dirt poor. And his father said, the only way to be rich, the only way to be successful is that you need an education. So everything that that father did was to make sure that his son had the best education because that was the way out of poverty. But his mom kept throwing the Bible at him. Read the Bible. This is important. And he would read the Bible. He would read the Old Testament, and he would read it. And guess what? He didn't like it. Why? Because it was filled with immoral people. And I'm like, whoa, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I guess if you read the story of David, you could come across that. It's filled with imperfect people. And so he spends the rest of his youth and adulthood trying to achieve perfection. And what that looked like, that perfection in the Roman mind was that you didn't deal with anger, you didn't deal with lust, you, you never uh, didn't really kind of deal with emotions. It was all about enlightenment. You knew everything that you could know, and you were never a slave to your emotions. That was perfection. You'll never do nothing wrong. You'll never think ill about another person. You're perfect. And he wanted that. He wanted that so badly. And he read the Bible. He says, I'm not going to find it in that. So I'm moving on. And so he joins this weird heretic. Uh, I guess it's a cult. It's called the Mana, Manichees. I'm probably saying it wrong. Manichees. And he spends years with them learning under their best thing. And they promise, you will find perfection in enlightenment. You will find it. And after years and years and years and realizing he's nowhere close to being perfect, he says, you guys are full of it. I'm out. I'm done. I'm moving on. And so he, he moved away from them. He goes to live in different places. He starts reading different things and still nothing. Nothing is perfect. Nothing is getting to what he feels he can do. Eventually, he does come across a bishop, Bishop Ambrose, another popular guy. He could have his own sermon. And he saw him, and he would watch Ambrose um, uh, dialogue with the heretics. He would watch him debate the heretics, and he did it in such a smart way that it impressed Augustine. He says, oh, you're, you believe what you're saying. It's not like all the other Christians that I see the heretics just destroy because they have a very shallow faith. He says, no, you, you're the real deal. But he still believes he can achieve perfection by himself. And so he doesn't know what to do. Ambrose kind of talks to him. He starts saying, hey, read Paul, read these things. And he realizes that, he, okay, Paul is a guy that has to deal with his own sin. He's a guy, that, but he, he is still considered perfect. Because of what? Grace. And so he can't reconcile that. He can't, he just, he's so frustrated because he still believes in his heart he can achieve perfection on his own. And so I love this story. He then goes to a garden and he's just sitting there, sitting on a park bench, frustrated, upset, mad at the world. And he hears a little girl singing and she's just repeating these words. Take it, read it. Take it, read it. 
take, I don't know what kind of song that could be, but it was, <laughs> she was singing it. Take it, read it. And right there in his heart, he knew this, she's meaning the Bible. The Bible. And he runs, and he grabs the Bible, and he does exactly what every pastor, what every youth pastor says not to do, which is, I'm just going to blind read something and figure out and go, hmm, what is this? And he comes across Romans 13, 13 through 14, that says, let us behave decently as in the daytime not in the carousing and drunkenness, not in the sexual immorality and debauchery, not in the dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. That goes down in history. I mean, it's, it's Paul, right? It's the Roman. But it's like it's the Augustine verse because it changed everything in him. He now now realizes that he can achieve perfection, but not on his own. He now realizes that there's a Holy Spirit involved that can lead him to what he's been looking for, that it's possible to do. And he converts right then and there. He does it. Now, the weird thing is that when this takes place, he's like, he spent more than half his life as a heretic, more than half his life just indulging in sin, indulging in the flesh. But now he's converted. And so what does he want to do? He decides, thank you, Lord, for my conversion. So I'm going to spend the rest of my days in retirement studying you in a monastery, and that's just, that's going to be just swell. But God had different plans for him. That wasn't going to fly, but that was his plan. And so he just goes off, and he does these amazing things. He's, he's written these amazing books, and he, he's just got to do things. And one of the things, and this isn't really highlighted, but I love what he he did with the Trinity and how he explained it. So in his time, the idea of the Trinity was he didn't create. The idea that God is love, he didn't create. But what was going on, there was a big argument at the time about how, how is God love? And so these heretic people would be like, well, God possibly can't be love because he needs something to love to be love, right? So that was the prevailing thought for a lot of people at that time. And so it kind of made us like, oh, we're obviously very important because if, if God loves us and we don't exist, well, then God can't be love. And he's like, no, no. No, God is love because let me tell you why. Let me tell you about the Trinity. He says, the Trinity is that love. And then he talks about the, 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 the baptism of Jesus. He goes, look at the baptism of Jesus. Look how Jesus, the obedience of the Son it's, it's in that love that the son has for the father in being obedient and doing what is going to happen. And then in the baptism, you get the father, heavens open up, and the father loving the son back. And you got the Holy Spirit in between them. God is love from the beginning of time because it's the Holy Spirit, the father, and the son in this constant loop of love. 
that from the beginning, it was always love. That concept, if you've heard of it, it's because of Augustine. Augustine brought that to the table. Again, not that God is love, not the concept of the Trinity, but the concept that the Trinity is love. Amazing. But my first point in this that I really want to kind of hammer home is that Augustine, he really highlighted the importance of a real relationship with Jesus. A real relationship with Jesus. Okay, again, or let me read this. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and in I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Look, again, it was the popular thing to do in that time in Rome was to be a Christian. But he is quoted, he says, I became a Christian when the Holy Spirit moved in my heart and not one time before. Like he needed that, that relationship with God. It is vital to the Christian walk. You cannot go anywhere without God with you. He was, he got, Augustine had to realize he was never going to be perfect and he was never going to rely on some tradition or ritual to bring that. It was only going to be a walk with God that he was going to have. So again, he became a Christian late in his life, spent most of his time as a heretic, um, and he wanted to retire and just be nice. But... When he did, and he went to the town where he was going to start his monastery and be quiet, the people dragged him to the local bishop and said, ordain this man. He needs to be like an assistant bishop. And he did it. And they, grabbed, they dragged him and says, this is the guy you need. And then he starts crying. And they're saying, wow, this is so amazing. Like, you're, you're really invested in us that you're crying, that, you, that, you're, oh, that you're a pastor. And he says, no, no, you don't get it. I used to laugh at this. Like, I used to laugh at pastors and say, what a waste of a life. And now I am one. <laughs> so God had different plans for him. Because he understood that relationship with God, walking every moment. He believed that every waking, I'm sorry, I'm ahead of myself. He needed to be in this town at this church. Why? Because at the time, the church was under heavily attacked by just different thoughts, different ideas. And that brings me to my second point that we can learn from Augustine, is that the church is very necessary. Ephesians 4, 12 says this, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and of their deceitful scheming. See, that's everything he's dealing with at this time. And we still deal with today. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow and become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does. 
He knew that Christians couldn't walk alone. As a matter of fact, he would go on to say, like, it's a very arrogant belief to, to, for you to, to distance yourself from the church thinking that you can be a Christian by yourself. He says, you can't do it. You need to be a part of the body. And he goes, yes, I get it. There are, there are congregations, there are churches that are filled with imperfect people. He says, but that is no excuse for you to separate yourself. God will do that at the end when God separates the sheep from the goats. Let God do that, but never separate yourself from the body. It's vital. It is necessary. You have to stick with it. He says, do not cut yourself off from the very thing that God loves. I can remember John, how much he loved church. Not just church, but like this church. Like, I can, I can still picture him as he would walk up the same kind of steps that you guys do. And he would say, I'm home. Good to be home. He loved this church. And, and he did so much for it. And then not only that, but he loved the outside church, like, like just uh, like other churches. One of my biggest blessings in life is that I got to do um, uh, Mexico ministry with him. We got to, we started out kind of going at the same time, and we got to see uh, this small little one room, I guess probably just as big as the kitchen, one room little church. And every time we'd go back, it'd get bigger, and they'd add on, and they'd add on, and they'd add on. They had a second story and a basement, and it was just like this remarkable thing to see. And we loved that. (laughs) And then... He had this bright idea. He just, for some reason, I can't remember how he came across it, but he got like, like gallons upon gallons of paint. Like he just got access to it. And no one knew, or I can't remember how, but he just remembered all of a sudden he's just praying and he said, you know, ask, ask the pastor in Mexico if he wants to paint. He's like, that's dumb. Why would he want a bunch of paint? And so sent him an email. The pastor said, yes, we want the paint. Yes, that would be a great thing because apparently it's a thing to, to you know, well, paint. We all like paint, but it's better than just the cinder block than what the church was then. He says, yes. He goes, not only that, but I have other pastor buddies that would love paint too. He's like, great, we have a lot. The thing is, it was going to be very costly to get the paint into Mexico. And so John maybe didn't do things exactly legal. (laughs) And we started smuggling paint into Mexico. (laughs) I missed the very first one run he did, but I did the second. And we're pulling up. We're about to enter the border. And I think, you know, we're in this big truck, and he's driving and we're, it's, it's, a, it's like, a, it's traffic. It's slow to get inside of Mexico. And it's hot, windows are rolled down. We're just kind of sitting there. And he goes, hey. <laughs> he said, just, go, look, if we get pulled to the side, he goes, let me do all the talking. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, they might take us into a room and beat us with like rubber hoses. He goes, but they'll beat me. I'll, I'll make sure, and I'm like, what? And like, he's like, yeah, 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 I'm freaking out, right? <laughs> and this guy right here 
Gary Sconyards, sweet Gary Sconyards, he's in the truck behind us. He doesn't know that at that moment, my friend John's telling me this horrific story that we might get put in a Mexican prison for smuggling paint. He all of a sudden grabs me from the window and freaks me out. This perfect timing. Thanks, Gary. But we did it, and we did it for years. We did it for a long time, getting paint into, into Mexico. And, the, and look, look, that was just why, the reason why we went. But once we're in there, oh, man, we're praying for people. We're praying for people. And I was still kind of young and nervous, and I'm like, I don't really want to pray. I just kind of want to play with the kids. He goes, no, this is what we do. We pray with people for whatever's going on. We pray with people. And I learned that this is what we do. We pray for people. This is why the church exists, to pray for people, to be there for people. It's a necessity. And Augustine, he loved the church so much that he defended it. And that brings me to my third point. The Christian life is a journey of faith. Romans 1.17 says, for, for the gospel of righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it was written, the righteous will live by faith. Augustine believed that Christians shouldn't just sit back and let events just happen. Like, oh, if God wants me to do this, then he'll pick me up and make me do it. No. See, he believed that there, was, there needed to be action behind what we did. He said, like, yeah, it, to walk with God is to physically walk with God, that every day you are walking with God, every day you are going to be available to him for whatever he wants done, that you're not sitting around and just kind of like, okay, God, direct me. It was an active walk. It was an active faith. He would say that a relationship with God means that we live with him every day. Every waking moment belongs to him, even if you're a non-believer. Wow. See, he believed that everything led to God's work. He cried when he became a pastor. Why? Because he used to make fun of them. He hated them. He loved to argue with them. He loved to use his, his big intellect brain and just to talk about how why Christianity will never be anything until he finally became one. And yes, he lived most of his life as a heretic, as a sinful person. But the, when he became a pastor, a bishop of the church, that was being attacked by all these different ideas and thoughts that were heresy, what better person to lead a church than a former heretic, right? And he believed that. He believed that from the beginning, from the time he was born, that God was with him, even when he was a sinner, even when he was messed up. He said, everything led me to the moment that God needed me to be. He didn't look back at his life and say, woe is me. I'm upset. I, I ruined everything. He said, no, I'm exactly where I need to be at the time that I need to be it. And... Like I said, this is kind of the end, towards the end of Rome. The big world event that happened in his time was when the barbarians entered Rome and sacked it, burnt it to the ground. 
And so he lived in the town, which is in North Africa, on the other side of the Mediterranean. And he got to be there as hundreds and hundreds of refugees entered his town, fleeing Rome out of fear because everything's gone. And again, he had to fight the thought because when everyone entered Rome and they were like, someone must have messed up, someone must have sinned because we're a Christian nation now. Why did barbarians come and ruin everything? He said, no. It's not just about like someone messed up. That's just sin. That's just what happens. That's just evil in the world. It's not because anyone, because of any one person. It just happens. He'd have to fight the thought that he would argue because, again, the Roman belief, the Christian Roman belief was that if you are rich, that if you are popular, that if you are well off, well, then God loves you and you and God, you have God's blessing. But if you are poor and you have no money and you're just like at the bottom of the barrel, well, then God hates you. And he said, no, no, that's not the way it is. God loves everybody, rich or poor. But sin is just sin. But God loves everybody. He wrote, and this is what I learned in school. He wrote this book called Confessions. And what it intended to be, back then when you become a bishop or a pastor, you have to write write like a story of your life. And it has to be about this victorious, triumphant, awesome conversion and all the awesome things that you did. And so when he goes to write his, he writes, it's called, again, it's called Confessions. And he writes, I was a sinner before and I'm still a sinner. Like nothing changed in me personally. Like Like I still have evil thoughts. I still struggle with lust. I still deal with all this stuff. He says, but it's by the grace of God that I still walk forward. Amen. And he, would, he, he became known as the doctor of grace. Like that was his message. That's how he counseled people. That's how he discipled people, that he met them where they were. And he would say, like, it's not about what you're going to do. It's about the grace of God that allows you to do it. It was, and that's exactly how my friend discipled me. You see, my friend didn't wait for me to stop looking like a drug dealer (laughs) to talk to me. He didn't wait for that. And as time went on and, and... you know, I'd, I'd start confessing things to him, and I was just so angry, and I was always just so upset and, and, and young. And I can remember it wasn't, he would never come down on me. In fact, I, there, I had this really distinct memory that the college grew up together, and it was at my, my wife's house or her childhood home. We did something, but I can remember as we're leaving, he, we kind of just kind of sat in the car and said, hey, I need to talk to you something. And I would just complain. I would just unload. And just, he'd just listen. And instead, and he could have, he could have just hammered me. Like, you know, you've been a Christian for a couple years now. What's your deal? Like, you know better. No, he let me be kind of in that moment. And he would do things like, 
he would hear me like talk about how angry I am at like my my family and, and my situation in life and all these things. And he'd be like, hey, did you ever see that movie, The Matrix? <laughs> or hey, and we'd have these talks about Matrix or the movie Gladiator. See, he knew my language. He spoke to me. I'm like, okay, let's talk about movies. And then he would share like these spiritual principles found in the movies that he never would come down on me. And yes, there were times when maybe, you know, he had to remind me of things. But he never, he never wrote me off. His famous thing that I always, will always remember, because as time went on, we saw lots of each other, but he would always ask me, how are you and God doing? No matter what we were doing in life, he'd always ask me, how are you and God doing? You know, we kind of lost that disciple, you know, we're more peers now, but he would never stop to ask me, hey, how are you and God doing? And sometimes I dreaded, because I knew he was going to ask me that question. I had to be honest. Sometimes I'm like, oh, no, I'll tell you right now. But that, that's what it was. That's what Augustine did. He was there for his people. He was there for his church. He was there for the refugees. He didn't get to just be in retirement like he planned. And what's, int- what's really cool is that, well, not cool, but at the end of his life, he's sitting in his town, and the vandals are coming. And they're, they're, they're coming, and again, this is the last of the Roman Empire. This is the last holdout. And he starts to think about, like, everything he's done in his life. He has this library of all, everything he's written, all his works, and he was like, they're going to come in, and everything's going to be destroyed. And that's it. It's going to be, I'm done. He eventually dies, dies of fever, and the vandals do come, and they destroy his town. But his church and his library remained untouched. It survived. And all those teachings and all those things, eventually Martin Luther, the man who did the Reformation, he's an Augustine monk. He learns everything that Augustine did. Goes on to just all these different things and and, and churches are impacted by the works that he did still today major influence. So his life was definitely for a purpose, even though his Christian conversion happened at the end of his life. All right, band, come on up. All right, so what do we do with this? What do we do with this guy that lived so, so long ago? Well, I have to ask you and ask yourselves, what's God calling you to do now? What's God calling you to do right now? Not later, but today. See, again, we can put ourselves in a position to think, well, I need to wait to my life's perfect. The truth is, you just, you just got to make the relationship right with God. Perfection's not going to come this side of heaven. Make the relationship right with God. But now, don't wait for your life to be perfect. Don't wait for the perfect moment because guess what? You should just get over it. It's not going to happen. Do what God wants you to do now. Don't wait. Don't wait. I, I, you know, going into Mexico is definitely an adventure. But the truth is, like, this whole life's an adventure. Augustine's life was an adventure. This Christian life is anything but boring. It's an adventure. 
But again, if we're sitting there waiting for that perfect moment, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss what God has for us. We're going to miss what God wants us to do. So today I would like to pray for you if anyone needs prayer. I'm going to open this time for ministry. And, and if you need prayer for anything, please come, up, come on up. But maybe, maybe you're like Augustine's mom who was the Christian mom that tried to do everything to get him to read the Bible, but it just wasn't taking. But guess what? She was planting seeds. She was planting seeds in her kid's heart. So if you're a parent or, or if you are, are trying to, to minister to other people or trying to, to get that thing and, and it's, it's just not taking, have heart that you're planting seeds and know that the promise is that God's word never returns void into somebody. So keep moving forward. Number two, maybe you're going to be like Augustine or Augustine and that everything in your life good or bad, be used for the kingdom, and that you're ready to kind of make that step. Like, I'm ready to, yes, put the past behind me and not let it dictate my future. Or maybe you're going to be like my friend John, and you need to pour into somebody. You need to be there, and you need to make that first move with somebody, even if it might look like a drug dealer. I think everyone, everyone here, God has a plan, God has a life for, and God wants to activate you into something, be it in your family, be it at home, be it at work. So if that's any of you, let us pray for you. And again, if you just need prayer for anything, Pray for that too. Don't, don't, don't let another week go by before you have another opportunity to get prayer.
Like I said, he had the name Doctor of Grace. His whole thought, his whole ministry, again, was just the fact that we can be connected to God and we don't have to be perfect before we do it. And what a better way to connect to God than communion. And so if you have your, your elements, let's start with the bread, the body. And again, going back to the baptism, it was the son's obedience to the father that allowed us to be connected to God. And so we are thankful for that body that was given as a sacrifice. But take this now in the name of Jesus. And then it's by the blood that it is all possible. Augustine wanted perfection. He strived for it. He wanted it. And the only way he was going to get it was by the blood of Jesus Christ, that it washes away our sins. So do that now in remembrance and in, in thankfulness that our sins are gone because of his blood. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, for imperfect people. We thank you, Lord, that you use everybody. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you use our past to glorify you, God. No matter how dark or bad it is, Lord, that you have used our past. We thank you for this spiritual, this, this faith journey that you've called us on, all to. So church, go in boldness this week. That knowing that when the relationship is good, that when you have done business with God, there is nothing he cannot do through you. Don't wait for perfection. Get over it and be used by God. We thank you. Guys, have a great week. Amen. Amen.